Welcome to the 145th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with Stephen R. Donaldson, best-selling fantasy and science fiction author and author of The Chronicles of Thomas Covenant. The Last Dark, the final book in the 10-volume Chronicles of Thomas Covenant fantasy series, has just been published. The series started in 1977 with the publication of Lord Fowl's Bane. Donaldson has also published other novels as well, including the science fiction Gap Cycle, Mordant's Need, a two-volume fantasy story with the novels The Mirror of Her Dreams and A Man Rides Through. Stay tuned for my interview with Stephen R. Donaldson. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Stephen R. Donaldson. Stephen is the New York Times bestselling author of the Chronicles of Thomas Covenant fantasy series. The last book in the series, The Last Dark, was just published in October. Stephen's other books include the two-book Mordant's Need fantasy novels, The Mirror of Her Dreams, and A Man Rides Through, and also the science fiction Gap series. Stephen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's nice to be invited. Sure. Well, I know that you can't explain the entire Thomas Covenant series to listeners who haven't read you before, but how would you describe The Last Dark, the final book in the Chronicles of Thomas Covenant? Well, that is, of course, intended to be the climax of the entire 10-book series. The series is broken in roughly into three long stories. Uh you know, the Chronicles, the Second Chronicles, and then the Last Chronicles. And each one of those, in its own way, is a complete story. But my ambition for The Last Dark was that it would not only provide a satisfying resolution for The Last Chronicles, but that it would tie together the entire ten-book thing into a more, more unified structure so that it would provide a satisfying resolution to everything, if that's humanly possible. <laughs> sure. Well, as you just mentioned, um, The Last Dark is the last book in the Chronicles of Thomas Covenant, and it ties the entire story together, as you said. Um, given that, how did it feel kind of emotionally for you writing the, the book, and especially as you, as you reached the end? I mean, given the fact that you've spent a major portion of your life writing about this character, Thomas Covenant? Well, and I spent 10, uh, 12 years continuously on just the last chronicles. It has been a huge chunk of my life. Um, but my emotions on finishing it have been different than on finishing other projects. That's partly because uh, probably my fatigue level after 12 years of work is higher than it has been after other projects. And partly because so much of there, there's been a long gap between the publication of the Second Covenant trilogy and the beginning of this last one. Um, nearly 20 years passed before I returned to the project. And there's more than one reason for that 20-year gap, one of which was um, I didn't feel like I was a good enough writer to write the story I had in mind for the last Chronicles. So I spent 20 years of writing other things, trying to become a better writer. 
And the other is that I was still afraid of writing The Last Chronicles, you know, for the same reason. I feared I was not a good enough writer to carry it off. It is a very ambitious project, and I'm uh, I'm a naturally anxious uh, and self-doubting individual, rather like most of the characters I write about. And uh, it was hard for me to bring myself to doing it. So um, it involved facing my fears in a way that nothing else I have ever written required me to do. And as a result, the emotional dynamic has been mostly one of, you know, oh, thank God, <laughs> I, actually, I actually finished it. On other occasions, there has been, uh, you know, grief at being done with the characters, uh, you know, sad to see them go, uh, wishing there were, wishing I didn't have to let go of an idea I had fallen in love with. But in this case, I'm definitely ready to be done. <laughs> so, uh, so I am, if anything, comforted by the fact that it has been completed. That's great. Well, well how do you feel um, um, having completed it? And specifically, do, do you feel like you achieved what you kind of envisioned in your mind? As you just mentioned, there was this this fear of not being able to accomplish it. Now that it's done, do, do you do you feel um, uh, comfortable in, in uh, achieving what you had set out to do? I'm always torn between two conflicting reactions to what I write, and this is consistently true with everything that I write. I never feel that I did well enough at what I set out to do. But I also feel that Simultaneously, I did better than I set out to do. It's part of the mystery of creative writing that keeps that keeps me going. Is at the same time that you're falling short of the grand image that you have, that I have in my mind, I'm also, in ways I can't easily define, exceeding the grand image that I had in mind. And I feel that way about this book. It is both more and less that I had hoped it would be, and I really don't know how to explain it any better than that. Um, You know, the imagination does wonderful things that you don't expect, and the conscious mind is striving for one thing, and sometimes the unconscious mind is striving for another, and the results are never exactly what you thought they were going to be, but there's always surprises and wonderful discoveries along with the process of failing what it was you thought you were going to do. And, uh, and that's really a great thing. Um, if the surprises balance out the frustration and it makes it, helps make it worth doing. That's great. Well, as you just mentioned, there was this 20 year gap, uh, in in the series of you writing and, and publishing the novels, what has been the reaction uh, thus far to to fans to the the last series? One of the things that I always say about the people who read my books is that my audience is deep rather than broad. People who like what I do like it a lot. People who 
don't like what I do, sometimes don't like it a lot. You could probably, <laughs> there's probably been no time in the past 30 years when you haven't been able to go on the internet somewhere and find somebody who is strenuously trashing the work that I have done. They're so offended by it that decades after I've done it, people still feel that they need to vent a feeling of animus about it. They really don't like what I do. What I do requires an unusual amount of engagement from the reader. I ask for that engagement. I give my own engagement. But it can be emotionally very uncomfortable. I mean, some of the people who love what I do will admit that reading one of my books is completely exhausting because they feel emotionally run out by the scale of what it is I, I'm encouraging them to give to the story. Now, I like to believe that I give enough to make that, uh, make that worthwhile for the reader, but not everybody agrees. So those portions of my past readership who really love what I do have been absolutely ecstatic that I'm coming back to the last Chronicles. The people who actively hate what it is I do have chosen to believe that I'm just writing more covenants so I can cash a paycheck and that there's really nothing in there that's worth reading. Sure. Um, and then there's, you know, a gamut of in between for people who read me for the magic and for the exciting excitement of the plot and who just try not to engage too much with the emotions of the characters. And they tend to read what I write and enjoy it, but admit that they don't actually like the people. Right. Um, so it's a more ambiguous response from those, those readers. Sure. And, and do you, do you have the sense? Uh, I mean, first of all, do you spend much time thinking about it in terms of the people who, as you just mentioned, really kind of violently, you know, dislike and talk about your work in that way? It, it, do you have a sense? Is it the, the emotional investment that they, that, that you require that they're shying away from, or are they coming to it with an expectation of, for the lack of a better word, kind of a hack and slash, uh, sword and sorcery type novel that that you know the Thomas Covenant books are are you know not. Well, I think that most people don't just launch with the Last Chronicles. They have an opinion that they formed a long time ago, and sure. most people know that they're not going to be getting. They're not going to be getting Robert Jordan or Terry Brooks, you know, if they read Donaldson. Personally. I think the people who actively hate what it is I do um, feel threatened by it. The story raises the question. The characters become, uh, if I may say this, the characters become too real, and their emotions and their fears become too real in ways that the reader can relate to and does not want to. Um, readers who want escapist fantasy you know, either learn not to read me at all, or they keep reading me because the plots are exciting and there's lots of battles and fight scenes and magical and beautiful things that they couldn't have imagined for themselves. 
and then they get really pissed off because I'm making them squirm the entire time. They're having what they <laughs> hoped was the greatest experience. Um, in my view, fantasy does not have to be an escapist literature. It is, I think, the f- most fundamental form of storytelling. I like to say that the oldest and most enduring forms of literature in every language on the planet is fantasy. It all uses magic and metaphors to talk about the struggle of being a human being. It uses magic and monsters as metaphors to talk about the struggles of being a human being. And I think I think fantasy has the potential to touch core issues in the human psyche that more mimetic, realistic forms of literature can only hint at. And, of course, many readers are much more comfortable with the hint than they are with the actual probing. But... um, But I have to remember what it was I was starting out to say. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> that's okay. I, I think you. I think you covered it. So, uh, just going back for a moment to this um, uh, twenty-year gap before you wrote the the last chronicles, and, and you talked about your kind of reluctance to to start on that because you you knew what you wanted to try to achieve. During those twenty years, did you have a framework of the plot? already in mind, and were, were you kind of actively kind of thinking about it during that time frame? Yes. Uh, when I realized that I wanted to write the second Chronicles of Thomas Covenant, the entire rest of the story uh, was in my mind. I knew that if I was going to write the second, I would eventually have to write the last, because I, I could then see the grand design. When I wrote the first trilogy, I had no intention of ever writing it more about this character or this world. But when the uh, lightning bolt struck me and I realized that I did not consider their story to be done, I saw that there was more than one stage that it would have to go through in order to be done. And the second stage of that, what remained, was the second Chronicles and the the last Chronicles has been the last stage. So I haven't been, you know, con- didn't spend that 20 years consciously mulling on it. When I write, I really try to commit myself completely to whatever it is I'm writing at that time. Right. And, you know, the other, all those intervening books, you know, they got my, my undivided attention. But on some unconscious level, I am sure that part of me was continuing to ball on the details of what it was I intended to do in the last Chronicles. So when I came to write them, there were ways in which I found that I had more material than I expected to have, because um, new things had emerged in my mind while I wasn't actually thinking about them. Sure. Sure. Well, I know that in one interview, you said your mind was blocking you from thinking of any new ideas or concepts until you finally sat down and wrote the the last Chronicles. Now that the last dark is done, do you have a sense yet what you might write next or is it just way too early? 
It's a bit, it's too early. And some of that has to do with the practical mechanisms of writing and publishing a book. Um, you write the book, you've got it all on paper, you're, you feel like you're done. But really, you're not done at all. You know, the editor's going to read it, and they're going to have suggestions. And you're going to have to think about those suggestions and then make changes. And then the proofreader's going to read it, and they're going to have all kinds of questions and suggestions. And then you're going to have to go through the whole book and reconsider things again and decide what's right and what's wrong and deal with everything there. And then the proofreader's going to go over it. And you have to go through that whole process again. And it feels, that has always felt, since I started getting published, it's always felt that books don't actually end. They just sort of peter out gradually. <laughs> now, there's an upside to this process. Um, it creates distance so that when the book is finally published, yet my emotions about it are no longer as raw as they were when I had first written the book. I've achieved enough space and objectivity that, for one thing, I can talk about it, and for another, I don't, you know, hang my hat on everything that any reader might have to say about it the way I would if the work were still raw in my mind. Sure. Um, but it does mean that you don't actually rest. Um, there's the recuperation process doesn't really start. Uh, until after after all that procedural stuff has been dealt with. And so I have not yet decided what I'm going to be doing next. Gotcha. So when, when you wrote the first Thomas Covenant trilogy that was published in the mid to late 1970s, the 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 fantasy genre was much different. And what I mean by that is you walk into a bookstore now and there are just shelves and shelves and shelves filled with long fantasy series. And that just wasn't the case in, in the 70s when you wrote and, and then had those uh, had the first trilogy published. Can you remember the original inspiration for for those first books and that first trilogy? Well, I remember it very well, and I remember the circumstances uh, in the publishing world as well as in my life. Um, <clears throat> Tolkien, in the first half of the 70s, and probably throughout the 70s, was selling a million sets a year. It was an extraordinary literary phenomenon. On a personal level, however, I was in college and graduate school in an intellectual environment where people did not respect fantasy. They smiled condescendingly at Lord of the Rings and, said, and dismissed it as adolescent wish fulfillment. Well, I had been deeply moved by reading Lord of the Rings, and I had come to the conclusion then that this is... I, this is the way I talked about it to myself. It was fit work for a man to do. It was worth doing, and I decided in college that if I ever got the ideas for fantasy, I was not going to shy away from it simply because the intellectual world I lived in did not take it seriously. On the other side, on the public side, because Tolkien was so popular, popular, every publisher in the world wanted to try to cash in. And they all had fantasy programs, and none of them had the 
dimmest clue of what it was they were trying to do, and they all failed. And so at the time that I was starting to try to find a publisher for the first Chronicles, the publishers had all given up on fantasy. They no longer had fantasy editors. They no longer had fantasy programs. They were not interested in taking the risk again. Until Lester Del Rey came along as the fantasy editor for Ballantine Books. And Lester had believed all along that if it were done right, he could have a successful fantasy publishing program. And he was given the chance to prove it. Well, he started by proving it with Terry Brooks's Sword of Shannara. That was his very first book, and it exploded on the publishing scene. Now, if you actually read it, the plot outline is exactly the same as the plot for The Lord of the Rings. Terry Brooks was trying to recreate for himself the experience of reading Lord of the Rings by writing Lord of the Rings. <laughs> but readers didn't care. They were so hungry for that kind of storytelling that they jumped on it with both feet. And bookstores were excited, and the booksellers were excited, and everybody was excited, and Lester said, oh, and by the way, now I have an epic trilogy for you. And there was the second problem. There was the first covenant trilogy. I, in a manner of speaking, wrote the coattails of the beginning of what has become, you know, a modern fantasy glut. But this was the first the first wave that crashed through of that of the you know the following tidal wave and it benefited me you know on a, on an economic level That's enormously true. that Lester had been ready to go at exactly the right time when the market was primed and hungry now of course the problem for fantasy readers is to choose between the 500 that are available to see if they can locate one they might conceivably like. Um, and it's a very different, it's a totally different world to be published in. Sure. And can you remember that original inspiration for the Thomas Covenant character? Well, sure. Um, on the one hand, because I was living in an intellectual environment which did not take fantasy seriously, and I did, I thought that if I were to write a fantasy, I needed to write a fantasy that tried to answer the question of why fantasy actually matters, and the only way to do that would be to write about somebody who didn't buy it, who rejected from the ground up, the very notion of what was going on in these big epic fantasy novels. Well, that wasn't enough. You know, that was a concept, but it had no story attached to it. The other side of the situation, my father was an orthopedic medical missionary in India, and as an orthopedist, he worked extensively with people who have leprosy. Um, it was only one of his duties, but he was the chief medical officer for the local leprosarium. Well, he was an orthopedist because he liked to fix things. It was like carpentry. You know, if he did it right, it 
was beautiful and it worked. It's not like internal medicine where, you know, you guess about what's wrong, you throw in some pills, and you hope that something good is going to happen for the patient. Well, in orthopedics, when you do it right, the proof is right there in front of you. But you can't do that for people with leprosy. Because what they need is damage control, not repair. And so for the only time in his life that I know of, my father became emotionally invested in the dilemma of being a leper. And one day, he was in the United States visiting, and I happened to hear him talking, and he was saying things that I had all heard before. But he was talking on this occasion about the emotional dilemma and practical aspects of what it's like to have leprosy. And I suddenly thought, if I wanted to write a big fantasy story about a person who rejects it, I should write about somebody who has every conceivable reason to prefer fantasy. Because if your attitude toward fantasy is a matter of personal convenience, um, there's no moral weight to it. You have a fantasy, it's a terrible nightmare, you wake up and say, thank God, I don't believe any of that. That was just a nightmare. But if your life is a nightmare, and you wake up, and you have this fantasy experience, and you still say, no, I know the difference between reality and fantasy, and even though it hurts, I'm going to cling to what I believe is important, which is reality. Now we've got... This is not just a moral assertion. This is a, this is a religious assertion. This is an assertion about the meaning of life, about the, what makes something important. And who better to write about as my unbeliever in a fantasy novel than just a leper? Well, once I made that connection, you know, the whole story just exploded in my head. Sure. You know, it didn't feel like inventing things. It felt like following the logical conclusions based on my central proposition. What is the land this fantasy world that Thomas Covenant goes to? It's just the opposite of being a leper. Um, and, you know, so it all just sort of came to me, and I spent the next three months just, you know, drawing maps and figuring out characters and working through the story working out the details of how I was going to arrange it so that my unbeliever ends up having to confront, you know, the evil principle in a non-real world and decide what he's going to do about it, because if he really doesn't believe in it, he doesn't need to do anything about it. <laughs> um, and then I started writing. And uh, once I started writing, I then realized but this was not just fit work for a man to do. This was the work I had been born to do. It fit my talents and my style of thinking better than anything else I had ever written. And so I was just thrilled, and I have, from that point of view, never looked back. That's great. So what was your relationship like with Lester Del Rey, and, and what impact did he have on the, the books? Well, Lester, um, Lester had a great eye for talent. And from my point of view, he discovered uh, 
a rather long list of people who might not have gotten published otherwise. The name I always refer to is Tim Powers because there are so there's so few people in the world as not just as imaginative but as unpredictable as Tim Powers. No two books are ever the same. The characters aren't the same. The worlds aren't the same. The way you have to think is the same. And he's an extraordinary feature writer. But Lester was an writer of the old school, the old pulp fiction thing, and his notion was you discover something really good and then you repeat it for the rest of your life. <laughs> so Tim Powers never got to book two with Lester because yeah. <laughs> he refused to write what Lester wanted him to write, and so he had to go somewhere else. Um, Terry Brooks continued with Lester through Lester's whole career because Terry Brooks just basically kept writing the same books over and over and over and over again. Now, that's changed. Um, Terry isn't like that now. But he was for years working with Lester. Well, I was in the same position. Lester wanted me to write the first Chronicles over again, and he wanted me to write it over and over again. And I thought this was the worst, worst idea I had ever heard. <laughs> I had never wanted to repeat myself. I believe that if a writer isn't stretching themselves to do new things that they don't know how to do, then they're not doing their job. They're not nurturing their talent. They're not developing their skills. They're not trying to grow as a creative artist. And you got to push, and that means you got to push into unfamiliar territory. So I dismissed the whole notion of writing more coming. Well, Lester's solution to this was to keep sending me plots for the Second Chronicles of Thomas Covenant. <laughs> you know, and they were god-awful. Um, you know, I... They were, they were all things that I would not have touched in a million years. But one day I got one of his letters, because this was back in the days when people actually wrote letters on paper, and um, I read his current ideas. And before I could stop myself, I thought, you know, that's really, really awful. What I really ought to do is, and boom, you know, I saw the entire edifice of the work I have done since. A was like, the writer Patricia McKillop calls it the tail of the comet. It's like the tail of the comet passes through your head and everything becomes fire. And then, then you have to do things. So then I returned to Covenant, but not in a way that Lester approved of. He was appalled at the fact that I had introduced Lyndon Avery as a female protagonist who was given equal narrative weight to Thomas Covenant. And he let me do the first book for The Wounded Land because it was practically all Covenant. But the second book that when I wrote it was practically all Lyndon Avery, and Lester went ballistic. I was violating his fundamental premises about what I should be doing, which is, of course, repeating myself. And plus he had prejudices about fantasy with female characters. He believed that he believed that it just couldn't work with a female protagonist. And the fight got so bad that he eventually, you know, ditched me as an author. Mm. Um, 
because I was not willing to sacrifice what I perceived to be my artistic integrity, and he was not willing to sacrifice what he perceived as his editorial integrity. But I was selling too well, and his publisher declined to back him up. So they simply gave me a new editor, and I continued being published by Valentine. Um, and after that, you know, both he and his wife, Judy Lynn, who was the science fiction editor there, and they never forgave me, and really never spoke to me again. Oh, wow. I was just going to ask you if you reconciled with him, but I guess not. So that's unfortunate. So do you, do you have any thoughts about the current state of the fantasy and science fiction literature? Well, now there's enough of it out there so that you can pay attention to what people call Sturgeon's Law. 90% of everything is junk. And that, of course, is just as true for the fine arts and for ballet and opera and mainstream novels as it is for fantasy. Um, 90% of it is junk. Um, I had actually reached the point where I was starting to think that apart from Patricia A. McKillop and Tim Powers, there was really nobody else out there who wasn't hacking out the same old formula until Stephen Erickson came along with his Tales of the Mouths and Book of the Fallen. And I was absolutely blown away. It is epic fantasy in a completely different sense of the word epic than either Tolkien or Donaldson has ever done. And it was magic and monsters of a completely different, completely imagined entirely new ways. And an approach to storytelling that is, I had never been seen before in this field. And suddenly I started to think, well, maybe... Maybe it's not uh, maybe it's not quite as repetitive a world as I thought. Um, Erickson's work is amazing, and I think the fact that he emerged from that ninety percent is very hopeful for other people emerging from that ninety percent. That's that's great. Well, given your success to date and and the uh, number of of successful novels that you've written, do you have any uh, writing tips or advice for aspiring writers who may be listening? Well, I have an enormous number of writing tips, most of which I've explained at length on my website, so it's hard to repeat them all. But <laughs> okay. let's say the two basic ones. These two things, I believe, like religion. One is, um, nobody else can teach you how to do it. Everybody's different, and in fact, the only thing any writer has to offer a reader is their individual uniqueness, their individual mind. You know, they really aren't any new words. You can fake a few, but really, there aren't any new words, there aren't any new metaphors, there aren't any new characters, there aren't any new stories. There's only new ways to think about those things, and that comes from the individual mind of the writer. And nobody else can help you find that. You have to figure it out for yourself. I like to say the hardest thing about being a human being is that you aren't born with an owner's manual. You can't flip to the index under talents and see what it is you're actually good for. 
you have to discover it, which means you have to take the risk of failure a lot, and you have to keep trying new things. So writers come to me, and a lot of them, particularly the young ones who want to talk to me, basically they want me to tell them how to become me. And that's a non-starter from the beginning. They have to figure out how to become themselves. The other thing I would always say is that more things are wrought by stubbornness than this world dreams of. Everybody can tell you horror, horror stories, but good things happen too. Lord Fowles Bane, my first and my far my still best-selling book, was rejected by every fiction publisher in the United States. I received 47 rejections for Lord Fowles Bane before entirely by chance it encountered Lester Del Rey. At the time, the day before Lester discovered me, I was the most dramatic failure that I knew of in life. Because I had given it my best shot for years and years and years, and nobody wanted to touch it. Um, it was a very dark time in my life. I went through the alphabet from A to Z with every fiction publisher there was, and they all said no, um, with varying degrees of politeness. Um, and yet it all worked out. Um, if you believe in it, then you better hang in there, because more things are wrought by stubbornness than this world dreams of. That's that's a, a great story. And and do you remember kind of what kept you determined and what kept you going after being rejected 47 times? Was it just the sense that you believed in the novel that you had written? Well, I like to say that my mommy did not raise any self-confident children. You know, if she had suspected us of self-confidence, she would have drowned us when we were puppies. Um, I am not a naturally self-confident person. What kept me going was not the belief that I was good. What kept me going was that the story was so exciting I couldn't stop. I started my submission process after writing the first book, and it was writing the second and then the third book that kept me alive during that rejection process. And I didn't hit the personal wall until I came to the end of the alphabet and the end of the story. So I had nothing more to write, and I had been rejected by everybody. And that, that was... That was the abyss from my point of view. That was as dark a time as there has ever been in my life. Um, so at that point, um, the way it felt like at the time, and remember this is back in the days of typewriters, you know, I had this fairly tall stack of paper on my desk. Very tall. Um, you know, and I didn't know what to do, but there it sat. And I found that I couldn't, simply couldn't bear to sit and look at it. Well, so I said, okay, I'll try British publishers, but I didn't know anything about British publishing. So I had to send away for a guide to British publishing. And while I was waiting, the book was still sitting there, and it was making me crazy. So I thought, well, Ballantine Books, they rejected this once, but they published Tolkien. And if anybody in the world ought to be willing to take a chance, it should be Ballantyne. So I resubmitted the book to Ballantyne. I did not know 
But since the last time my book had been there, they had fired all those editors, and they had a completely new staff, which included Lester and Judy Lindell Ray. And even then, it wasn't going to work. But Lester had already decided upon seeing the stack that he was going to reject the book unread. <laughs> and then, when he was... I mean, it was an Easter weekend, of all things, and he was going to go to Long Island with his wife's family for the Easter weekend, and he wanted something to read. And my book was the only one in his stack of manuscripts that was cleanly typed on non-corrasable bond. And he thought, oh, hell, at least this guy's smart enough to send me a clean manuscript that isn't going to erase when I rub my thumb across it. I'll give him a chance. And then my life changed. Wow. Um, That's a great story. <laughs> and your life did change. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, well, that's all the questions that I had. Did you have anything else that you wanted to mention before we wrap it up? Uh, no, I think we've covered. <laughs> In this case, I always have to ask myself, have I covered what my publishers would like me to cover since they're the ones who are trying to sell the book? Sure. Well, I'll, I'll just I'll just mention that again. So we again, we've been speaking with Stephen R. Donaldson, author of The Chronicles of Thomas Covenant. And I think what your publisher would want us to mention is The Last Dark was published in October. It's the final Thomas Covenant novel. It's in bookstores now. So go out and grab a copy. Or if you want to download it to your e-reader, you can do that as well. And Stephen, thanks for doing this interview. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.